0: Uh, let's go ahead, let's get into our text this morning. Uh, in Hebrews chapter 12, we've been talking uh, about, looking at how uh, it is that God perfects his people, uh, and it turns out that he perfects us the same way that he perfected his son, uh, Jesus, and that's by way of suffering. And we know that this process of perfecting uh, in the scriptures is called uh, sanctification. And, and we've, we've seen that suffering has come in all shapes and sizes, uh, for the people of God since Adam rebelled in the garden. And, uh, and as for the original audience of Hebrews, suffering has come in the form of persecution as it has for many Christians since. Uh, God, of course, wasn't their persecutor, but he was using their troubles to make them more like Jesus in the same way that uh, he uses your suffering and my suffering to conform us to the image of Christ. Last week, we looked at the encouragement, the comfort, and the assurance that comes to the believer through suffering. Uh, God takes our suffering and he transforms it into chastening to demonstrate to us that we're his children, that he loves us, that he's received us, and uh, also that he delights in us. So in other words, when we are being chastened by God, it proves that we're born again by the spirit of God. We are his and that should be a comfort to us. We also concluded from those verses that if suffering is not shaping you into the image of Christ and drawing you closer to Christ, then you probably do not belong to Christ. Uh, And there can be no comfort in that. Uh, Our text says that God only chastens his children. And uh, so suffering, as we know so far, it's necessary. If we are to be conformed to the image of Christ, Uh, it's comforting as it uh, confirms our sonship and our daughtership to the Father. I just coined that word for our our sisters. Uh, But suffering is also fruitful. It's fruitful, and that's what we'll explore today. Uh, Last week, we looked at the Lord's discipline when we fall into sin, and then we also considered the Lord's discipline when there is no apparent sin. And and if we are disciplined when there is no apparent sin, we have a tendency to ask, uh, now what have I done? And we responded to that by saying that it's not about what we've done, it's about what God wants us to become. It's what God is trying to uh, do with us so that he might use us, as was the case with Joseph and with Daniel and many others. But there's another question that arises when people are enduring suffering, and that is this. What is the benefit of all this? What's to gain? And so let's, let's look at that today. Please turn your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 12. Uh, we're gonna be in verse nine through 11, and that's where I'll be reading right now. The author says to us, furthermore, we have had human fathers who corrected us and we paid them respect. Shall we not much more readily be in subjection to the father of spirits and live? For they indeed, for a few days, chastened us as seemed best to them, but He, for our profit, that we may be partakers of His holiness. Now, no chastening seems to be joyful for the present, but painful. Nevertheless, afterward, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Let's go ahead and pray. Well, Father, we love you, and uh, and Lord. There's many things to be thankful for right now. We thank you for, for Rick. And Lord, we're thankful that you are watching after him, that you're ministering to his, his physical needs, to his spiritual needs. And Lord, we just pray that you would give him courage and strengthen his faith as he goes through this time. Uh, Lord, we pray for our missionaries. We ask that you'd lift them up, that you encourage their hearts. And uh, Lord, in whatever means possible, that you'd help them to... Um, minister to those around them just as we need to be doing and I pray Lord that in all of this distancing that we have right now that by your spirit that that you would do what we can't do you'd draw our hearts together and that we could have fellowship in a way that well is, is otherwise impossible and uh, and Lord also as we look more at suffering and we look at the benefits of it I pray Lord that you would minister to our hearts knowing that some people are are currently suffering deeply and others of us are observing it, and and we suffer in a different way along with them. And so teach us, Lord, and help us to understand its benefits. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, well in these verses, our our Father in Heaven's chastening is compared to the discipline employed by our fathers here on earth. And I know that that may not sit well with some of us, and some of you, because uh, your father was... uh, Uh, He disciplined in anger or he was abusive, uh, perhaps even your mother. Uh, But you have to understand that this passage is only a comparison and it's not exactly apples for apples. The assurance in the passage is that God's chastening is always profitable and never abusive, regardless of what our earthly fathers might have done. God's discipline may be painful, it's probably unpleasant, but it's always good, it's never wrong. So if the comparison does not sit well with you, just remember that every illustration breaks down. And for you today, it just breaks down more quickly. So what you need to do, and all of us really need to do, is focus on what the author is trying to get at and and not on on your own experience with your earthly father. Also, the author is giving a generalization. Uh, He's not being specific. And so when the scriptures are discussing things in the extreme, they just come out and say it. But that's not the intention here. Here, he's referring to the normal circumstances of life and and an abusive parent is not normal. They're evil. So please keep that in mind. In verse 10, the author says very pointedly that God chastens for our profit, for our benefit, that is, for our advantage. It is for our benefit that we suffer by means of chastening. Chastening. So so what is the benefit of the Lord's chastening? The text actually lists two things to us, which are essentially the same thing, they're just said in two different ways. Verse 10 speaks of being partakers of his holiness, and verse 11 says that it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness, of righteousness. And who doesn't want to be holy and righteous? We all do, but of course, um, well, true believers do, It's just the method of delivery that bugs us, And the author readily admits that God's method is not joyous, but painful, whether that pain is physical or emotional. However it comes, it's not fun. But those who are trained by God's chastening are the ones that enjoy, as the author says, the peaceable fruit of righteousness. They get to partake of God's holiness. At the end of verse 11, the author talks about being trained, by the Lord's chastening. He, he's returned to his comparison of, of, of Christian suffering to that of the Olympic Games. In verse one, the author compared the Christian faith to the long distance race, saying, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. In verse four, he compared our suffering to something like a boxing match, agonizing in the ring against an opponent, saying, you have not yet resisted to bloodshed, striving against sin. But here in verse 11, the author isn't comparing the faith to any particular sporting event, but the benefits that come from training for any number of events. Uh, Christians don't compete in a single event. We're more like the triathlete, who's who's more well-rounded than any other athlete. And just as physical training produces strength and endurance, the author is saying that suffering in the faith and for the faith produces holiness and righteousness. So essentially, suffering is training not fun, but it's fruitful. Now, now let's get more specific about the fruit. Look back at the end of verse 10 where the author says that we become partakers of his holiness. This holiness that results from our suffering is not some generic holiness or some version of holiness or worse, our own idea of holiness. The holiness attributed to us through suffering comes from God himself. It's actually his holiness. The same is true of the righteousness mentioned in verse 11. This is not the, the world's idea of what, is, of what righteousness might be or what any religious group says it is. It's not an arbitrary kind of righteousness, but it's the divine kind of righteousness. Culture, of course, is always trying to reassign new definitions for what is right, what is just, but God's righteousness is not fluid. It, it's, it's fixed, it's concrete, forever defined in his word and forever displayed in his nature. And so our righteousness that we, that we acquire from him is the God kind of righteousness. And Peter said something very similar in, in 2 Peter chapter one, verse three. He says, as his divine power is given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness, through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue, by which have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature. But to what end? He says, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust, but also for this reason, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue and to virtue knowledge and to knowledge self-control to self-control, perseverance, to perseverance, godliness, to godliness, brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness, love. So being a partaker of the divine nature yields faith, virtue, knowledge, self-control, perseverance, godliness, brotherly kindness, and love. You know, Peter could have saved his breath and just referred his audience to the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5, which, by the way, is a product of of the divine nature as opposed to human nature. It's the spirit's fruit, it's not our fruit. It's righteousness produced in our lives by the Holy Spirit. Now the difference in the book of Hebrews is that the author is telling us by what method God produces that fruit in our lives. Suffering happens to be the vehicle by which God imparts his righteousness to the believer. It's not the only method perhaps, but it is the most effective. So, by the Lord's chastening, we partake of his holiness and his righteousness. By holiness, the author is referring to moral purity. It's it's the absence of of blemish, uh, to be blameless or above reproach. Righteousness is essentially the same. Uh, If you are right, you're not wrong. In whatever circumstance, if you are righteous, you're not unrighteous. You are morally upright and blameless. Now, by themselves, the words are defined differently, but in the end, you get the same thing. You get likeness to Jesus. You, be, you become transformed into his moral character. Now, never complete likeness to Jesus in this life, but ever approaching that likeness until we stand before him. Now, real quick, the author says that we partake of his holiness, now, this is what theologians call a communicable attribute of God. And uh, communicable attributes are those moral qualities of God that can actually be shared with us. He can't share all of his attributes with us, but some of them he can, and, and these are them, uh, the, the moral ones. The word communicable is similar to our word contagious or infectious, albeit in a positive sense here, unlike, of course, COVID-19, which is a communicable virus that can be transferred from one person to another. The author is telling us that these moral attributes of Jesus called holiness and righteousness are communicable. They're, they're transferable to us. He shares them with us. In fact, um, I think most translations actually share, say that, he, that they're shared with us uh, rather than, uh, as the New King James says, we're partakers of them. And I, they better be because God commands us to be holy uh, as he is holy, First Peter 1, 15 and 16. Now, as we've said before, everyone, of course, wants to be more like Jesus. We just don't like the divine method. And a brief survey of Jesus' suffering would explain why. You know, he lived in poverty. He was hunted like a fugitive. He was rejected by family, friends, society. He was abandoned and slandered, persecuted, persecuted, beaten, falsely accused, mocked, humiliated, and eventually executed. And none of us look at that and say, well, sign me up. It sounds wonderful. But commenting on the suffering of Jesus, the author of Hebrews said, though he was a son, he learned obedience by the things that he suffered. Hebrews 5 Now, we may not suffer the same things Jesus did in order to learn obedience, but we will suffer. And the promise that we have from the scriptures is that it will be fruitful just as Jesus's suffering secured the salvation of countless souls, now I want to illustrate the benefits of suffering from the Scriptures. The best illustrator of Scripture is Scripture, and it, and 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 I want to look at how suffering bears fruit in our lives, and I want to do that by looking at how the psalmist interprets the life of Joseph in Psalm 105, 105, uh, which I've refer, referred to frequently in the past. In Psalm 105. The author is recounting the history of Israel, how it is that God called them and chose them and formed them and directed their path as he determined. But in verse 16 and 20 through 22, when he gets to the life, life of Joseph, the providence of God just really begins to shout, it becomes very clear to us. Now, when most people hear the word providence, all kinds of pleasant things come to mind, thanks to Western authors who have never really suffered like the rest of the world. Uh, I want to, well, I think Psalm 105 will help destroy that concept in your mind. God's providence is always good, but it's not always pleasant. So listen to what the author says about Joseph's experience. He says, moreover, God... "'called for a famine in the land. "'He destroyed all the provision of bread. "'He sent a man before them, Joseph, "'who was sold as a slave. "'They hurt his feet with fetters. "'He was laid in irons. "'Until the time that his dreams came to pass, "'the word of the Lord tested him. "'The king sent and released him. "'The ruler of the people let him go free. "'He made him lord of his house "'and ruler of his possessions.' to bind his princes at his pleasure and teach his elders wisdom. So the section here begins by attributing all of Joseph's miserable circumstances to the providence of God, the famine, the food shortage, his enslavement, injury, and his imprisonment. These are all attributed to the providence of God, miserable but good, necessary but fruitful. You remember that before Joseph was sold into slavery, he was having dreams that were prophetic in nature, predicting all that would happen in the future to him and his family. And as the text says, from the time that he had his dreams until the day of their fulfillment, God was testing Joseph. Verse 19. During all those hardships, God was testing him. So what do you think God is doing when you endure hardship? The word tested is a Hebrew word that is used for refining metals, a process that requires intense heat in order to separate metal from all the other impurities. God was using all of Joseph's suffering to refine him. Uh, there were impurities in Joseph that were unfit for the master's use. So God essentially smelted Joseph. All the things that we, are, uh, that we like to say are unfair God uses to make us uncommon, useful, and fit for his glory. There are things about us that only suffering can purge. God wants to smelt us as he did Joseph. You see, until metal is refined, it's pretty much useless, unless you're just looking for a paperweight. To make metal useful, it has to first endure great heat, by which it becomes pure, and then as it cools, it becomes pliable. The same is true for us. If man is to be useful to God, he has to to endure great suffering to be purified, and as we emerge from our struggles, we we become pliable in the hands of God for whatever purpose he desires. He's He's busy through our sufferings making us fit for his use. That's what God was doing to Joseph. When Joseph finally emerged from prison and stood before the king, he was fit for use. He was ready. God had trained him. He cultivated him in the school of suffering so Joseph could rule over the king's empire and save the people from starvation and death. Without Joseph, they were doomed. But there's something else I want you to consider. With Joseph, 20 years prior, they were also doomed. Hindsight's 20-20. And when you revisit the story of Joseph, the symbolism begins to uh, reveal itself. So listen to this. When Joseph was in his father's house, he was one boy among 12 sons. And though he was not the firstborn, he was favored, spoiled, and he had everything handed to him. Life could not have been better for a Bedouin child, but it was a recipe for disaster, which made Joseph useless to God. But when Jacob sent him north to check on his brothers, you can see God preparing the fire for him. And so when Joseph encountered his brothers, they threw him into the pit and down Joseph went into the refiner's pot. But apparently it wasn't hot enough. So God stoked the fire some more and Joseph was sold by his brothers to Midianite traders who mistreated him and took him captive to Egypt where he was sold to Potiphar. And just for a bit, God draws him out of the fire and prospers him in Potiphar's house. But something was still lacking. And so Joseph was falsely accused of sexual assault and back he went into the fire. Just as things were looking up for him, he was cast into prison. And then he was worse than a slave. He was a prisoner. But the refining process thus far had at least made him useful to the prison guard. And he's given an opportunity to shine. But after a glimmer of hope, he was quickly forgotten and left to rot in prison. The fire was stoked once again for Joseph. For years, Joseph was abused, he was enslaved, he was mistreated, falsely accused, and he was was forgotten in prison. Just as he would catch his breath, he was plunged back under again until he was reduced to nothing. And that's exactly where God wanted him. And then one day, the king had a nightmare, but he had no one to interpret his dream. And suddenly, Joseph was remembered and his name was brought to the king's attention. But don't miss the symbolism here. Imagine what Joseph looked like there in prison. But first, I need to remind you, this was not a prison in modern America where we have something called human rights. This was ancient Egypt where there was no such thing. Not for a prisoner who was formerly a slave. Joseph was less than nobody. So imagine his hair and his beard and his skin, his clothing. He must have smelt something awful and looked just as bad. He's no longer the favored one, the spoiled one. He's no longer the son who has it made. He's humbled, he's broken, he's unloved, and he's forgotten. And it was at this place in his suffering that the king calls for him. But Joseph wasn't allowed to stand before the king until he was shaved and changed his clothes and most certainly washed. And so it was as Joseph emerged from the refiner's fire, he looked brand new and he was fit for use. He was fashioned for God's purpose. Psalm 105 says that after God was done testing him, Joseph was made Lord over Pharaoh's household and ruler over all his possessions. He became the judge of all of Pharaoh's princes and the teacher of wisdom to all of Pharaoh's elders. And then, of course, we know the story. Joseph saved Egypt, his own family, and countless other lives from starvation and death. So what benefit was his suffering? Well, what a strange question to ask in hindsight. Someday you might be able to ask an Egyptian. His suffering was for the best. He was useless before his suffering, but afterward his character shined like the sun. And I do not mean our star. It's the son of God. After Joseph's father died there in Egypt, his brothers came to apologize for their sin. But Joseph immediately appealed to the providence of God, saying, as for you, You meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring it about as it is this day to save many people alive. Now therefore, do not be afraid. I will provide for you and your little ones. And so Joseph comforted them and spoke kindly to them. That's Genesis 50, 20 through 21. In the end, it was Joseph who understood that it was the providence of God And what Joseph had become was the fruit of suffering. He was a product of the refiner's fire. He didn't emerge from the fire bitter and vindictive or vengeful and hateful, but grateful and tender, loving and wise. His suffering was fruitful. Now to be clear, God's refining process does not always involve slavery and imprisonment, but he does reserve the right to refine us how he chooses And he knows the best way to refine each of us. That's why your process of refinement may look different from mine. He knows exactly what kind of suffering will bring about the best results in each of us. And it all ends, of course, with our likeness being a reflection of Jesus. And to be sure, none of it is to be regretted or despised. As the author has already exhorted us, he says, my son, do not despise the Lord's chastening, for by it, God deals with us as sons that we might partake of his holiness and bear the peaceable fruit of righteousness. Suffering is necessary. It's comforting and it's fruitful. So when you suffer, look to what God is accomplishing through it and trust him with your life and the life of others. If you belong to God, he'll bring your life to his orchestrated conclusion. He will finish the work he started and there's no force in the universe that can stop him. You have been predestined by our sovereign God to be conformed to the image of his Son, and so God will use every circumstance to accomplish his purposes. Sometimes the means he uses are unpleasant, but they're always good. So don't ever think that the Lord's chastening is unnecessary. Understand it for what it is so that you can be comforted by it, and look forward in hope to what he will accomplish through it. Now, so not to be misunderstood, I do not mean that you should go looking for suffering in order to be made holy. That was the stupidity behind the ascetic monks who used to abuse their bodies in order to purge themselves of sin. Scripture never tells us to do that. In fact, there's a place where Paul mocks it. But according to Paul, in 2 Timothy 3, 12, all you have to do is live godly in Christ Jesus and you will suffer persecution. And the context of that verse follows Paul's discussion about preaching the gospel. Preach the gospel, suffer persecution, stand up for what is right, and you'll get knocked down. Another way to suffer is to serve and love people, because one way or another, they're going to break your heart. Some will turn on you, others will talk bad about you, some will abandon you, and then others will get sick on you, others will die. People and, and what they do will cause you to suffer. And don't forget, just being born into this broken world can expose you to any form of suffering. You don't have to go searching for it. God uses a broken world to break us. But out of the ashes emerges something beautiful, something like Jesus. So don't despise the Lord's chastening, but subject yourself to his hand. He will bring you through the fire, refined and fit for his use. And that's all I got for you today.